Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. You're listening to Griefcast with me, Carrie Ad Lloyd. Griefcast is a place to talk, share and laugh about the peculiar human process of death and grief. Each week I talk to a different person about their experiences of grief and death as we remember someone that they have lost along the way. Whether it was a long time ago or you've just joined the club. Welcome to Griefcast. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Hey Griefsters, I hope you're having an okay week wherever you are listening. I want to say a huge, huge, massive thank you for your reaction to um, the book cover um, and the fact that we've got a date now. It's coming out January 2023. Um, Thank you so much for your amazing comments and your amazing pre-orders. It makes such a huge difference to a book uh, if you pre-order it. I know that seems a strange thing, but it all counts for the first week of sales. So if you have ever enjoyed the show, if I've ever helped you in any way, I would be hugely, hugely grateful if you could pre-order the book. That would be amazing. The link is um, in my Twitter bio at The Griefcast and it's on Instagram as well at the grief cast thank you so much if you've done so already it's been truly truly heartwarming and uh, yeah i'm a bit just yeah thank thank you this week i'm talking to the incredible writer ella risbridger ella is the author of midnight chicken and other recipes worth living for and her brand new book the year of miracles recipes about love and grief and growing things was published in may this year and is available to buy now ella is a beautiful writer um it's it you know it is a cookbook there's some amazing recipes in it but it's surrounded by these incredible beautiful essays and and just lovely beautiful drawings i'm overusing the word beautiful but it really is um a very beautiful book year of miracles and it is all about the grief that she has experienced and how she used cooking and food to kind of find her way through that she's such an interesting person and i loved talking to her so much the way she expresses what she's been through and what happened to her is yeah just yeah really moving and a really interesting take on it I think uh, especially as yeah I'm I'm not someone who goes to food for comfort and love so I always find people that do really really fascinating and the book is as I said just gorgeous um I've posted about it on Instagram before but yeah definitely it's a good gift for someone who is feeling in grief at the moment I think it's a good way to feel cheery about what's happening without not acknowledging what has happened to them Ella came in to talk to me about her partner, John, who died of cancer aged 28. Congratulations, firstly, on what couldn't be a more perfect book for a Griefcast listener. 
<laughs> when I saw the subtitle, I was like, oh, yes, sign me up. Let's get involved. It's so funny. It's so funny because the subtitle went through so many changes. I'm Oh, really? Titles and subtitles I'm so picky about. And we had a title that was much more cooking focused and it just didn't feel right to any mm. of us. And it was about, you know, the recipes or whatever and the kind of recipes. And it just didn't feel right to any of us not to say these are recipes about grief and it's kind of an unusual thing obviously because you've got that recipes about grief but it it kind of works and I'm really glad it worked for you as well oh yeah I mean it's funny because when I do speak to writers on this program often all the rest of their marketing has been like oh how can we hide the grief and with me they're like it's about grief and I'm like (laughs) come in come in my guys we're happy to talk about it but yeah I mean it it really I can see why that was problematic because if you didn't mention the grief and then you bought it thinking it's a book a a cookbook about lockdown or something and then you were like whoa because it really is about yeah it's about grief but not in a I mean you know I always preface whenever I talk to a writer about grief on the show like obviously it's not a book about constantly crying it's just a book about surviving really and surviving in grief in one of the most extremely difficult years some of us have been through the first lockdown is kind of what this book takes us from January to December and that was just a function of when I wrote it I was always going to write this book so John my late fiance my late partner died in 2018 and I went into a bit of a mad frenzy of work Mm. so I was just constantly pitching books and I sold this book in the August and he died in the April and I didn't think it was going to be as much about grief as <laughs> I didn't think it was going to be as much about grief as it was. I was in that, I don't know, you know, that denial bit where you're like, actually, I'm completely fine. No, yeah. I don't. Death has never touched me at all. I can do anything. <laughs> I actually have no feelings. <laughs> um, and then obviously it was much harder to write. And I was like, why is this book so hard to write? Why is this cheerful book about dinner parties so hard to write? And then suddenly there was a lockdown and I thought, it's oh, because it's a big book about grief. <laughs> <laughs> at least you were open to that do you know what I mean I think people some people spend their lives being like no it's not about grief and and that's where you know you can still get great art from that position but it's it's very difficult and I think it can be very painful whereas if you just go Ugh, it's a book about grief I, I just finished my book about grief and um but luckily I went to the publishers with like it's about grief don't worry and um it's such a funny thing to like to sit down and be and have to write about it like I don't know how you felt but it's it's awful (laughs) it's just like you sort of pitch it like yeah I can write about grief and then you sit down to write about your grief you're like oh god why have I said I could do this this is so so upsetting like I just want to watch neighbors go to sleep yeah the thing about grief is it is just so upsetting um I think because I I'm a writer who writes about my feelings primarily you know Midnight Chicken my first book you know it's a cookbook about trying to kill yourself so I'm not really a stranger to writing about hard stuff I'm writing about hard stuff in a way that is fun as well Mm. in that I think people are sometimes surprised that Midnight Chicken is a cheerful book Midnight Chicken is quite a cheerful book even though it starts with a suicide attempt and I think this one's quite a cheerful book even though it starts uh, with my partner dying horribly and very young so I think in terms of writing about grief I was definitely sure I didn't want to do it I was definitely Mm. sure because for before I wrote this book and before John died I had a column online and then in the independent about makeup about lipstick and grief lipstick and cancer was my first column and then it was about poetry and grief and then it was a beauty column and I was very personal in all of that and because I was writing weekly about what it was like to be a carer at the age of 23 what it was like to watch someone you loved kind of always teetering on the verge of death I mean I'm doing this all out of order I haven't even said who is I know I know don't worry I know we'll we'll come back in a minute but you can finish this thought definitely um so basically my partner was dying for a long time and he was really dying for a long time it was lots of like oh is this this it are we is this the last bit oh no okay we might get a week at home so it was very it was on the edge constantly Mm. he was constantly on the verge of dying for three years and so because I'd been writing about that feeling, in some ways writing about grief was a lot easier than that. It certainly felt cleaner mm. than writing about that teetering feeling of like being about to be grieving and also kind of preemptively grieving and also grieving grieving the life we'd had that didn't revolve around 
the cancer ward. Yeah. Yeah, I can see that because that's the thing about grief and and I and people talk about anticipatory grief which obviously does exist and and when you are caring or when someone's terminally ill you you are in the process of grieving but until someone dies until that door is like closed locked done then your grief is is hovering is you know you're you don't know when that process is beginning it is like the birth of a child or something like until they're here there's you can say all the things in the world you can say I'm going to feel this I'm going to do this you don't know and I often speak to people who are are in that stage of about to be in full grief and they'll say things to me like oh I think I'm this or I've done this and I think eh, <laughs> you don't know until like you said until it's like well now we are now they're dead and now I'm not there's no other there's no that narrative has ended it's so funny now we can begin yeah. a new story I actually found that easier I found it easier to cope with in the constant hope I found the mm. hoping part of grief. And also the fact that I needed people to see that I was grieving something. So when John was dying and John was in hospital, I felt very strongly that our life was gone. And it was gone because he had a... Yeah. So we'll get into it. But he had cancer and then a brain injury. And the brain injury made it really clear. It was kind of a very weird complication of the very weird treatment he had for his very weird cancer. The brain injury made it clear that he was never going to come home. Mm. And we lived in the tiniest flat on the Mile End Road in East London. It was extremely grimy and extremely small. I mean, I could literally touch all four walls of the kitchen. (laughs) There was no room I couldn't, like, stretch out and touch all the walls of. Our bedroom fit a double bed in, and that was about it. Double bed and, like, a little tiny wardrobe. Awful. Awful and small, but there was no way we were getting a specialist wheelchair in there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so particularly in that year, I was like, and also because when someone has a brain injury, you're kind of losing bits of them a lot and you've already... So I was like, the grief where no, I could get no one to see what I'd lost mm. was so hard. I think when he died, what felt like a huge, unbelievable blessing to me was everybody suddenly seeing that everything had gone for me and everything mm. had lost in that whole world that I had, you know, loved so much was gone. And I actually found that much easier to cope with than that anticipatory hovering, what have we lost, but what were we going to gain? Who knows what the future holds? state i find hope very difficult yeah i can really i can really understand that i can really understand i can understand as well it's like you said it's hard for other people because they don't because grief is hard anyway grief's hard grief's hard for the person grieving and then for your surrounding support network if they're like oh well he's still here like they don't know they're not swooping in to be like right person's died I'm here here's the food here's the love so everyone's like oh they're just dealing with it and it it is then hard to kind of like you said for people I think what the phrase you used was really lovely for people to see to see what's happened so who are we remembering today (laughs) um remembering is a funny word for me I think because I try quite hard not to kind of think about it in remembering terms more of the kind of like ongoing thing Mm. I don't know but basically the person who died is was is was uh my eight boyfriend my late partner uh john uh who died wow in april 2018 um after having had cancer and then a brain injury for nearly three years it was very bad i mean i i cannot stress to you enough quite how bad it all was yeah Um, and how long were you together before his before he got diagnosed before he became sick before he became diagnosed we're only together for three and a bit years we've been together for Mm. three and a bit years because we met when I was nine. We got together when I was nineteen, and I was wow. twenty-two when he got diagnosed. Um, but because we were kind of London, you know how you get in London. People who are kind of London babies. People who the family is far away. My family were abroad. He wasn't at the time we met super close to his family, and kind of all our friends were these people whose parents and had very much left their hometowns and their kind of lives behind to come to London. Mm. So we were very, independent feels like a funny word, but we were a very little like tight unit of, mm. like I think now looking back on it, I'm amazed that he stayed in London. You know, he was 25 and I was 22. That's really young. That's really yes, young to not really, have, really to not kind of have that ongoing family support. And I think, I think we didn't want it, but also mm. I'm now like, why? Why didn't you want it? Yeah. <laughs> We were very defensive about just doing it on our own, fixing it all. We are very little. I think it's hard as well when, you know, so my dad died when I was 15. And I think it takes so much time 
to look back and see how young you are when something happens. Totally. Because you know I mean? totally. for ages I was like, oh, 15, like what? It's ma- it's basically 18. It's basically 20. Like it's, it's <laughs> it doesn't matter. It's just enough. And then now, which I've talked about before on the show, if I meet a 15 year old now, I'm like, baby, you're a tiny baby. <laughs> like, what do you think? You have any opinions that matter? You don't, you're a baby. But I can totally believe at 22, after being with someone for three years, you met when you were 19, like, like you said, you're a unit. Of course we can do this. Of course we can handle it. Like, exactly. you don't see yourself in the, in the truth often because and it, maybe it's too hard to see. Totally. And I think as we'd moved in together straight away, I mean, really straight away, because I'd been living in France and my family were abroad and I was literally, I moved to London really to be with him. I said it was to go to university, but really it was because I was just, you know, 19 and in love. Yeah. So we'd formed this very domestic partnership and we both had a lot going on mental health wise and I think that didn't help in terms of forming kind of Mm. tight unit but now I look at 22 year olds my sister just turned 22 and I'm like what how yeah how could I have done how why didn't I just reach out but I think that's part of grief I guess and kind of part of anticipatory grief is this thing of for me anyway was kind of pulling in and making it just kind of trying to form a tight unit that would be kind of a containment for it yeah. I was so frightened and I think the idea of letting a lot of people in and I say all this in the knowledge that one of the things that happened when John got sick was that we let a lot of people in in that we did a lot of fundraising a lot of awareness a lot of chatting a lot of talking about it John was very funny about dying he had a blog and he was wrote things sometimes for the paper and he was just a very funny person and he didn't stop being funny because he was dying and about dying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you're funny in life, you're yeah, your death is still like you're you don't change because you're you've got cancer. No, and I I think what was nice when he died was feeling that there were so many funny things for various incredibly traumatic and complex reasons that I am absolutely not allowed to talk about on a podcast. We didn't get to go to the funeral and on the day of his funeral for very complex work reasons. We ended up having to watch a sort of collection of us who'd loved him, the film Burlesque, starring <laughs> Christina Aguilera, which inexplicably he had always maintained was the best film ever made. And we were just there, like, how? How can it be that on this day of this, this like, funeral traumatic, not being allowed to go to the funeral, extreme, I cannot even tell you how traumatic it was, we're all just sitting around watching this terrible film that no one cares about because it's like, well, for legitimate work reasons, we need to watch the film Burlesque. What? And that was very funny to me. And I found that a huge part of grieving was being able to find the kind of small, funny things that felt felt at the time like a sign and now feel like, I don't know what, like comfort. Yeah, it's hard, isn't it? I think with with things like that it's like if it's a sign or it's not a sign it's just mad coincidence like whatever it is if you can find comfort in it great <laughs> like it doesn't really matter what the like the name of it is what matters is that you were able to on that awful day of not being for various reasons to go to the funeral were able to not you know smash your head into a sink and just be like no I can't I refuse for this to be my life to just sit with friends who loved you and watch a film that he thought was brilliant which it really is. We need like, to have, we to need to have words with him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, I feel like that. I feel like I know him better by you telling me he would defend burlesque as a great film. It's like, oh yeah, okay, okay. <laughs> he had terrible opinions about almost anything, everything. Really, <laughs> one of the nicest things actually about writing this book about him dying was because he was very. I don't know how to put it. He was very online. He was very online as a person, and he mm. had a huge circle of well-wishers and acquaintances and kind of distant friends and then a very very close tight-knit circle of people who kind of really got the very real him Mm. sometimes we joke that he only liked two or three he only liked two or three people in the world but he had masses of friends and acquaintances yeah and a lot of those people because when someone's dying particularly when someone's dying of cancer and being brave about it they kind of make them into a bit of a saint Yes, yeah. Into yeah, yeah. a bit of a, oh, you're so brave, you're so wonderful. You know, when he died, we got a lot of messages being like, couldn't have happened to a nicer, nicer guy. And I remember my friend saying, it could have happened to nicer <laughs> people every day. He was not nice. And 
of course he was nice in lots of ways but I really understood then Mm. the thing of being like you know nice was not one of his top characteristics he was incredibly funny and generous and one of the wonderful things about writing this book was feeling like oh you know what he's been dead for three well four four years now I can talk about him as he was I can talk about this kind of incredible irascible like generous giant man I mean he was six five he was like twice as wide as me across the shoulders and he was kind of larger than life in every possible way yeah and it was really nice to get to write about that it was really nice to get to write about you know he wouldn't eat pasta I don't know why he (laughs) yeah I like that you said that in the book and I was like yeah what but this this girl is like an amazing home cook what the fuck is he not eating pasta for like I must have made her life so hard he was always on a he was always on a diet or very much not on a diet he had two huge extremes so he would either be like let's get two pizzas each i'm going out i want this i want that or like so when i met him he was on an apples and whiskey diet which just consists of those two things so he he had a lot going on and one of the wonderful things about this book was getting to sort of show people a bit what he was like as a person not just Mm. as a person who is dying yeah i I got that real sense of um of him in the book especially when you ella in the book is talking to the friends who knew and loved him in that intimate circle and like you said remembering him and i guess it's not like an unfavorable way it's an honest way and that's like so nice in grief because i know what you you mean is when everyone everyone puts him on the pedestal and acts like they were an angel and and i felt very the same with my dad because he really wasn't an angel he was really like a difficult character (laughs) fun interesting arrogant amusing great communicator but my god like could be an absolute absolute arsehole and the people who appreciated that side of him felt to me like like then you didn't mind sharing your grief with them because you're like oh okay we're talking about the same person exactly and I think there's this horrible thing when someone dies I find it really horrible to kind of make them into this saint, make them into mm. this kind of hero figure to be like, oh, he died too young. I say, yeah, he did. But also he did this and this. And he was complicated and he was real. And yeah. I find the kind of, when people kind of make a hagiog- hagiography, hagiography, I don't know how you say it, the thing where you make someone into a saint anyway. Um, I find that really hard because it takes it, it takes him rather yeah. one step further out of being in our lives. I mean, I said earlier that I have a real, I find remembering really hard, the word mm. remembering really hard because one of the things that has been really crucial to me in figuring out grief and understanding grief and like kind of learning how to live alongside grief in a way mm. has been learning to kind of bring him with me in a way. I don't I don't want to feel like he's trapped in a sort of saint-shaped box back in either 2018 when he died or in 2014 before he was ever ill. I don't want him to stay stuck there. I like the idea that he kind of shaped my whole life and then I'm making decisions because of him and not for him exactly, but kind of with him in my mind often I'll do something and I'll think you'd hate this you'd hate this so much and I do it kind of because of that I mean just after he died my immediate grief which I felt like nothing at all for the first year because I was just doing it and then the second year I felt like quite guilty and now I feel like I've kind of come to an equilibrium just that I just kept doing things that I knew he'd hate (laughs) I he had lots of bad opinions like he didn't think nail varnish he didn't like bright nail varnish he thought it was horrible So I just constantly painted my nails like the brightest colours I could find. I wore a lot of neon. I bought a gold sequin bikini. There was this weird heat wave. Do you remember that in like April 2018? There was a weird heat wave. And I just spent the whole time wearing like extremely short denim cutoffs and a gold, like a sequin bikini in the park. And just being like, yeah, I'm going to go out. Going to do all these things. And because he hated going out. (laughs) He liked the pub, but he didn't like clubs. He didn't really like dancing. But I just felt this urge to be like, well, I'm going to live my life. I'm going to live yeah. my life. I'm going to find all the things that you would hate and do them. And it was such an interesting response. I think it was probably quite healthy, but quite mad. I think I was quite mad. The oh, moment- I mean, I'm not, I wouldn't blame you. <laughs> like, like dealing with that at your age and... I mean, who, you know, who, even the grown-ups, as I like to think of them, <laughs> people who meet grief at the right age, so to speak, go mad. So I completely understand. And I think, especially when you've been um, with cancer, I mean, my dad wasn't ill for very long at all in comparison, but when you've been dealing with, like, hospital life, it's so grim, it's so beige and grey and and everyone, no one has any colour. <laughs> and so I, 
I know that feeling of like after someone's died, like it's like you've come up for air. You know, you're like, <gasps> and you start like really totally. breathing. Like you're like, that's, and I remember me and my mum talking about that of like, you just want to like suddenly like live and eat good food and laugh really heartily because you're like, I'm not fucking dead. And but when you're in a hospital with someone, you start thinking like, oh, am I dying too? Because that's what am it feels I, like. Am I also dead? Yeah. It was, and I think in some ways actually that's really the heart of this book. There's this recipe in the book for dukkah they're like middle eastern like spice mix yes yeah, and yeah, yeah. i left that recipe out i kept taking it out putting it in like writing different introductions because i was really scared of what people would think because it's very much about how after john died i had this incredible urge to fill everything with color mm. i mean my life had become so beige i wore the same thing every day basically for three years i had like two pairs of jeans and two hospital jumpers I literally just like wore the same thing every day basically and then I would try and I would try and put lipstick on I just and like by the end I was so tired of it I was so tired of wearing makeup so tired of trying to put on a brave face mm. and I was it was all so beige apart from this lipstick which by the end had come to feel like an obligation like a thing I was doing to show that I wasn't going to give up on him or on us even though I kind of knew that maybe giving up on us and give not giving up on him but giving up on him was the right thing to do you know he was very he was very unwell and he was very sick and he was a person who had been very clear before his brain injury about what would make a life worth living for him and obviously it's not the same for everyone but for him the things he loved were like being the most interesting and the most exciting and the most like capable person in a room the person everyone was looking at and he had always been very clear that he didn't, he would find life being, he was unable to speak really, he had aphasia. Um, and then he kind of got it back a bit, but he was still really struggling. And he, you know, and that was the best case scenario that he would always really struggle. And he had lots of physical health complications as well. And so even though I kind of knew that the moral, moral thing to do was maybe to stop fighting so hard and maybe to stop hanging on and being like no it's okay we're gonna get exactly back to the flat somehow we're gonna get you out of this wheelchair so that we can go home to our house which can't have a wheelchair in it and we don't really have the money for a house that could Mm. and we don't have any of the things and actually everything you love like being very drunk and smoking a lot is not compatible (laughs) with (laughs) these many many drugs you now have to live on so I think I was doing this awful double act close to the end of like I couldn't be bothered with clothes and I was just like wearing horrible beigey jumpers and just you can see I'm just like grabbing my wrist <laughs> yeah, yeah. like horrible cuffs of jumpers and just all that so drab 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 and we spent a lot of time in hospitals and then towards the end like a lot of time in intensive care and tight like high what do they call it high dependency high units dependency and that, unit, yeah. that kind of stuff which is so drab and obviously it's quite common now people know about it which was so weird when COVID started and suddenly everyone knew about like staying away from people and washing your hands and wearing a mask and I was like wow this was my whole life um I found it very triggering actually suddenly to be back in that world of like washing your hands and oh yeah 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 but anyway after he died I had this urge like I must fill my life with color if I don't fill my life with the kind of gold sequins and neon and it was almost like I had to remind myself why I had to keep living does that make sense yeah 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 and that is what this recipe about Dukkha is about, is about this idea of bright colours and mm. br- big flavours and salt and spice and, like, it's got various spices in it that kind of, they kind of stain your fingers. And one of the things that was gorgeous in the book was getting Elisa, our illustrator, and Anita, our designer, and they've literally splashed the page with orange. And there's like these beautiful, like, oil and pastel splashes of orange everywhere. And it's so bright and vivid, and it's an essay that is quite short but very much about death and it's so bright and I was so worried that people would I feel better about it now but for a long time I was really worried that people would judge me for the brightness yeah, of it yeah. and in some ways maybe that's what held me back with the subtitle as well was like I'm interested to see how people feel about the fact this is a very neon book <laughs> <laughs> say hello to a new era of mental health care Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, 
an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hey, everyone. I've been on the go recently. Phoenix, Kansas City, Chicago. If you're like me and have a home but aren't always at home, you have an Airbnb. Hosting your home or a spare room is a very practical side hustle. If you live in a big game town, you can Airbnb your place for fans to stay in. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash boast. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome back to Griefcast with Carrie Ad Lloyd. But I think that's so important and that's also what I've had with this show. Like the logo for this show is like bright orange and blue. And there's an umbrella because like, yeah, it's about grief. And, you know, they're kind of... But I remember speaking to my designer and an artist I've worked with a lot called Jade Perkin about this logo. And she lost her mum and both of us were very like our grief was not constant weeping. Our grief wasn't walking around elegantly being sad. Like that's not what our grief looked like. <laughs> so I wanted this show and that logo to reflect that. And I felt like it's so interesting because when I saw, obviously my proof copy looks very different, but when I saw your the proper copy and how bright, I didn't even think, oh gosh, that's bright. Because for me, again, it's like what we're saying about when you sainthood someone who's died, it's like when you sainthood the grieving and make them like these wonderful people that just walk around, you know, dabbing their eyes and saying wise things. Oh, you're like, so right, you're so you know, right. It's not true. And and that's also why I, I can relate to that, I guess, with you with spice and color, like that's what happened to me with comedy. Like I wanted to like make jokes, like a lot of jokes, as many jokes as possible and watch comedy and really laugh about what had happened because because I didn't know how else to deal with it. And it was so awful that I felt like if you just focused on that bit of, well, you know, your dad dies. <laughs> it's like, well, that's just so fucking awful. But if you can like throw in this, the weirdness, like watching burlesque, all this other stuff that happens, it just balances out. And it's that's that's truthful because every day wasn't a constant weeping. You know, you, you have to have the boring conversations and people do make jokes and you do laugh. And for me with the comedy this is my theory, I have no scientific backing for it, but I felt like when you laugh, you get so much more oxygen into your lungs, like you really have to take big gulps. And it felt like that was me being like, you're allowed to breathe, like you're not in the hospital anymore. You can do this, you can take these huge gulps of laughter in, that's okay. Because for a brief moment in my life, everything had been paused and everything had been like, this is you know the worst thing that's ever happened. And it's a weird place to be when the worst thing that, you know, the worst thing that's ever happened to you has happened and you're still standing at the end of it, <laughs> you're still there going, totally. well, I still hear, what do I do? Just every day get down on my knees and cry or do I put lipstick on, get dressed, have a shower, eat a chocolate bar? Like all these other things have to happen. I was so surprised that I was still alive. Yeah. I was so surprised that I was still alive and somehow had to keep living and I so know what you mean about jokes because I really hope this book is funny it has got jokes it is funny I tried really hard I was like (laughs) this 
it was obviously very terrible, but it was funny in lots of yeah. ways. It was funny, and it was funny to find myself in that situation. It it was like it wasn't funny to be a quasi widow at twenty five, but it was interesting, and there were funny elements. Yeah, but I think that's what people find hard with grief, like you said, because if they haven't, if they're not in the club, as we say on the show there's a way that they want the grief to look and they want it to be and anyone sort of not being that makes people feel uncomfortable because they're like no no grief is this and they want you to put you know put you in a box and they want the dying person to have been perfect and they want them to have been nice and wonderful and it was too they were too young it should never have oh how awful like they used to say to my about my dad all the time of um it was so good it was quick he would have hated to be ill for so long he would have hated it and i remember thinking you're right. Like he was a very, like you know, he was a marathon runner. He was a triathlete. Like he would have really hated to not to been out of action. But also, would he like? Would he have liked longer to live? Would we have liked longer? It's just this way that people are trying to find something that makes them feel better. You know, I so found I that, that so hard. I yeah. found people making themselves feel better to be really unbearable. I mean, yeah. the thing is, with cancer, is it happened. It happened constantly. I truly remember seeing someone I think it was on Twitter saying about their partner after you know Don said on Twitter I have cancer and you know it was really bad cancer like very few people have had it they were like yeah most people we don't have a prognosis not enough people have had this cancer ah three weeks three months we don't know could you maybe won't die um also chemo probably doesn't work it was a real, like, we don't know anything about this cancer. Yeah. One doctor who happened to be affiliated with the hospital had seen one case of it, but a long time ago, and he wow. didn't really have a treatment regime for it or anything. So it was very much like, we're going we're gonna to take some wild stabs in the dark here. There was a oh lot of, oh, like, he had such brutal chemo. The reason he got the brain injury was because he had such brutal treatments for various stuff because modern chemo didn't work on it. Oh, anyway, it was absolutely endless. But I remember seeing someone say, oh, I've made my boyfriend promise he'll never get cancer and leave me. And I was like, <laughs> oh. okay, babe. Um, <laughs> I hate to tell you, I don't think it works like that. But I do think people will just grasp at anything to make themselves yeah. happy. And do you know what's awful is? I've definitely done it to other people. Oh, yeah, my God. You That's know, the thing you realise as you get further away from your grief, like zero point is you're like oh I thought I was like the queen of this and then you're like oh I've said some really stupid shit haven't I? but I feel like I've said stupid stuff after I feel yeah, like oh, yes, I still definitely. yeah 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 I have known other people have died since John and I'm just like what what do I say what do I do what do I want people to think of you know uh my best school friend died uh the year after John Oh god! And she had been a huge, huge, huge part of our our family life. Really, she came on lots of family holidays, and then she'd been she'd been very, very mentally ill for a long time. And I had a lot of like guilt about I was looking after John, so I couldn't be there for her. And I still regret a lot of things to do with that situation. But because I'd been close to her parents, and she had been super close to my parents and my sisters, and we loved her so, so much, and. You know, we went to the funeral and the wake and it was wonderful to see her family and everything. And now three years on, you know, the anniversary was uh, just recently. And I was like, should I write to her parents again? And I was like, would I want that? It's like, I don't know. Do I want that? Do I want people to acknowledge the anniversary of John's death? We always call it deadiversary and we have traditionally had a small party. <laughs> but do I want people who were kind of not involved in the death yeah, of Roger. Yeah. And it's still like, you think that it's going to give you a pass to understanding pain. And it doesn't. It gives you a sense that it's much richer and deeper than maybe you previously thought, but it's not a cheat sheet. No, no, I think that's... it. Yeah, it can be a, like a tough lesson. <laughs> because when you're in that first year of grief, you're like, oh, am I like this... Or you are so consumed with your grief, you know? And then... Totally. And, you know, I'm 20 plus years to my dad passing away dying and doing this show was the big learning curve for me because that made me go when I started I was like oh my god you know there's no grief I can't talk about like I understand it all and then I would hit grief so I was like I don't know what to say this is so awful I like I can't imagine what you went through that's so like that and then 
you realise every grief is unique because every relationship is unique. You know, that's, you only have to look at the way siblings will grieve a parent, you know, like uh, everyone grieves very differently. It's the same parents they're brought up in the same household and yet they feel very differently about it because you have a different relationship. And that's why it does, like you said, it's not a cheat sheet. It doesn't give you a free pass at all. I think it, what I think it does is it deepens your empathy and it makes you, I think it's easier when you're not on the when you're on the other side of the door to go. I mean, they're probably fine, or like they seem fine, and believe yeah. it. Whereas when you are through the totally. door, you're like, uh, they're not fine, <laughs> and they won't be fine, and nothing I say will make it fine. So even if I get it wrong, that's okay. You know, I think the all you can do is think, well, what would I like? And also, I always go to people with the sort of caveat of this might be the wrong thing. Like, I just wanted to say, I remember it's the anniversary. Obviously, you might not want me to say that. And if you yeah. don't, that's absolutely fine. And to mean that, to not be like, it's absolutely fine. But let's be like, no, no. If you go, I really don't want you to talk about that grief. Go, yeah, that's absolutely fine. And not be offended. Because that's that's the hard work that you have to do to support someone. To be like, list, actually listen to what they want and be dictated by that. Yeah. And I think people do find that very, very difficult. Yeah. Kind of grieving letting people grieve in their way rather than the way we're back again to that thing of what should a grieving person look like and I think for a lot of people that's still a very real thing that they think a grieving person should be sad in a very particular way and want very particular things whereas as I said what I wanted was a sequin bikini and then a lot of (laughs) uh, to do a lot of cooking which may not be everyone's way although I really recommend sequin bikini to any (laughs) I think sequin bikini is like I think that's universal. I feel like I could have done with the sequence. I could have done with someone being like, put this on and, and cheer the fuck up and just go out and stop thinking about it. I think actually that might have been quite useful if someone had insisted on it. Yeah, I mean, the book, we should say, is filled with like the most delicious looking recipes. Like I did find that as someone in my grief, like we really, we were, we were in the not eating bit for quite a while, me and my mum. And I was like, God, how does she make such a delicious, like... How did she be asked to make such delicious looking things? But I can, having now married someone who equates food with love in the way you describe in the book, I have learnt that some people operate in a different way. (laughs) I think also the time in the book is quite elided. So it's three years condensed into one, basically. Um, Which is something else I felt really nervous about, but was kind of necessary in order for the book to work to say oh this is when he died and then we had this year and then it was the lockdown it would have been easier if there wasn't a lockdown I think to spread it out but obviously Damn because it. lockdown mucked up my book routine <laughs> well obviously because then the third year of grieving him was so weird yeah yeah and we should talk about that we had when the lockdown started I so I had my second child at the start literally the start of that lockdown so I was oh, a bit God. I was a bit all over the place but I went to the grief class twitter because I had because they everyone on is very supportive and reacts back very quickly so I was like is anyone else feeling griefy with this lockdown and so many people were like oh my god it's so triggering and it felt to me like it felt like grief like I was like this reminds me of grief except instead of it just being me and me being able to like fuck you guys none of you understand everyone was going through it which was awful because I was like where are the people who are happy that make me feel like oh, maybe one day I'll be happy where are the gold bikinis I yes yes where are the gold bikinis where are the gold bikinis where are, I mean we spent a lot of time we had a lot of small parties my flatmate and I we had a lot of time being like oh should we go to the bar tonight and the bar by the bar we did mean like a kitchen but with a candle we bought a disco ball yeah disco ball we bought disco my kid like I'd say it was for the kids but we really enjoyed it I have no kids and I really recommended I actually sent one to my grandparents because I was like I think you need it I think you need a disco ball energy in your life yeah it's like it definitely it gave a vibe and then before you know it you're putting funk on because you're like well I might as well like match this whole vibe but I think that's the thing and I think that's why actually I really didn't want to write a lockdown book really didn't um but then you know actually there were a lot of parallels and what I wanted to kind of show in a way not to get to my art about this but you can't see if you're listening to the podcast but I made the little like quotation things um (laughs) around my art that's not a thing I just say I wanted to kind of show that there is a path through that kind of pain because I saw those parallels and because I don't know when we're saying earlier about they're not fine there's nothing I can do that will make it fine I would like to say that I am fine yeah 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 I feel like it's really important I hear a lot of and 
I heard a lot of, and you will grieve forever. And I think it goes back to that thing of the tragic thing. And I think particularly when it's your partner who dies, mm. there's a very weird thing of being like, and you will be sad forever. Yeah. You will always be. And I am, I'm very different because it happened. I'm very different because he lived and I'm very different because he died. And I would never be who I am now without it. I would never live in the way I live now. I would never have met my current partner if I wasn't yeah. this person. And, you know, the sort of deep tragic irony is that they, actually John and my current partner had met and really liked each other. I'd never met him, but they had met in a sort of work capacity, um, which is mad to me. But I'm fine. And I, yeah. I, I, I find it sometimes the kind of thing of, you will be sad forever. I, I feel that there is sometimes a current of you will never be okay. It will yeah. never be okay. And it will never be good that he died, but it yeah. always will be what happened. Yeah. And I have found accepting the unchanging nature of that is just what happened, whether it was wrong that it happened or right that it happened or bad that it happened or good that it happened, in my opinion, bad, um, that he died very young. Um, but it did happen and it will always be the case that that happened to him and kind of indirectly then his death happened to me but it doesn't mean I'm not happy I'm happy basically every day <laughs> and I, I I wish someone had said to me that it was possible because I felt very like a freak for a lot of grieving I felt very strange and alienated from a lot of the like grief talk mm. because I felt like I don't want to be sad forever I don't want to mourn forever and I think maybe because I was so young and because he was my partner and even and of course he and I had talked a lot about his kind of impending death or not death or what would happen and he was I mean this tells you quite a lot about him quite brutal and was like nah bring a new girl to your funeral be fine <laughs> I was like no you wouldn't you've been mourning me for ages and he was like yeah for a bit but you know life goes on and so because I knew that I kind of always had that in my mind and I always worry that people are going to think that what I'm saying is everything happens for a reason which no, is not no, what no, I'm no. saying no but no I'm just saying everything happens <laughs> everything happens and then you kind of make your own reasons yeah 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 I feel strongly that I have made my life now into lots of reasons that John died I try to either spite him or honour him in most things that I do and I guess some things I'm just like I'm sure he'd be indifferent to Actually, he was never indifferent to anything. He was totally, absolutely, always had an opinion on absolutely every single subject, which is mad, but correct. But he's around in everything I make. I talk about him. I try to talk about him in a fun way. I don't really talk about grief very much anymore. Right after he died, I was talking about it a lot. And then I stopped. Yeah. I'm very glad I've got a great therapist. That's what I would say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, always. That's the constant advice of this show. Have a good therapist. If you're delving into that box, have someone to hold, like, hold your hand while you're doing it. Do you know what? The other really good bit of advice I heard was, and this was, I think, the single best bit of advice I got, the whole thing. Don't make any irreversible decisions for one year. Yes, I've heard that before. I think it's very good advice. Don't get a tattoo. Don't buy a house. Don't yeah. have a baby. Don't even get a pet. Don't do anything you can't reverse because you are bananas. And I look at some of the things I did in that first year. I'm like, wow, all right, uh, okay. And if someone did those to me, you know, I wrote some people letters. And I'm like, what? Okay. I had a lot of strong desires to do things that I'm now kind of like, oh, okay, I'm glad you didn't carry that through. I mean, <laughs> don't do anything. Keep every responsibility to a minimum. Keep yourself alive for one year. After that, get your memorial tattoo. After that, <laughs> buy your, you know, across your house face. That on that idea you've got to have a full face tattoo <laughs> of their of face. Their face. Go for it. But in a year, one year, if your friend says that to you, be like, I promise I'll pay for it, I'll be there. But in one year, I think that's extremely good advice. I don't know if anyone's talked about this on the show or whether you just know about it, but like Victorian morning dresses. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think about it a lot. The idea that you like wear black for one year and then you wear grey for one year and then you go into like purples. It's like, and then you can, if you want, wear your normal clothes, but with like a black band. Yeah, yeah. Truly, one of the things about writing publicly about grief 
is that people talk to me about grief. Mm. And often they'll come up to me after like an event. Obviously, I've not done very many. Or they'll write me emails. And I'm like, I had no idea. You just look like a normal person. And you're carrying this awful tragedy around. And so much of adulthood for me is meeting incredible people who seem super fun and we do super fun things together and then they're like yeah yeah you know I had this terrible childhood or oh yeah you know my baby died or oh yeah you know my mum my mum's got Alzheimer's and doesn't know who I am or just like a million things or my friend is dead or I have had this terrible history of eating disorders or everything everyone's got this terrible everyone's carrying around this mix of pain and joy all the time and I do sometimes wonder if we all wore the black armbands if we all wore the pretty badges whether we might just be gentler I think I yeah I think it would be helpful I really do and I think there is that phrase isn't there of like you know be kind to everyone you never know what and anyone's going through and I think especially this past couple of years there isn't anybody that hasn't been somehow affected by something and the idea that everybody and you know it's said on social media a lot, so it feels trite, where they're like, people will do like a beautiful post and be like, look, my life's actually quite hard. Even you're like, don't post your beautiful fucking living room and then say my life is quite hard. But it's true. Like, it, nobody's life is perfect. Nobody's life is easy. And I think that's on that note, Ella, that's a really good place for us all to just, yeah, take that with us. Be gentle and cook your beautiful recipes. Oh, I, I mean, I hope people pretty. do. Thank you so much, Ella, for, yeah sharing your story and talking about John I really appreciate it thank you so much for having me it's been lovely all of Ella's books are available to buy now that's uh, Midnight Chicken and there's some other children's books and poetry books she's written as well but The Year of Miracles which was published this year is available to buy right now you can also sign up to her substack ella.substack.com you can follow us at Twitter and Instagram or at The Griefcast. The show was recorded remotely. It was edited by Kate Holland. The music is provided by The Glue Ensemble. The artwork is by Jade Perkin. Um, I think that's everybody. And remember, you're not alone. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.